session with Dr. Farid Holaku. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Dolok, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra, doing Instagram Live, so not taking any calls today, but you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program, and the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on uh, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Um, let's get to the books of the week. The book for this week is White Teeth by Zadie Smith. White Teeth by Zadie Smith. It is a novel, so I try to do a few um, novels every uh, so often. Uh, I actually usually tell myself to do more of them, but have (laughs) a hard time finding ones that I want to read. But this one is recommended to me by uh, a good friend, Negar. And so looking forward to reading this book and sharing it with you on next week's show. So that is White Teeth by Zadie Smith. Let's get to the book of the week from uh, last week that I'll talk about today. It is The Problems of Philosophy by Bertrand Russell. The Problems of Philosophy by Bertrand Russell. This was a very interesting book. Bertrand Russell is considered if not the greatest, one of the greatest philosophers and thinkers of the 20th century. And uh, as always, I've mentioned when I read books, it's like you're having a conversation or getting to take part of a conversation with whoever the author is. And that was definitely the case for this book. Got to, in a way, see how he thinks. So I won't get into uh, all of the details of this book. To be honest, it's hard to discuss the philosophy and it is quite um, complicated to, to describe it all, but I'll share one, some of the thoughts and also just sh- some of his thoughts in general, because as I mentioned, he was a great thinker, someone who contributed greatly to how we think about lots of things. And he was also very active in things he believed in. So we think of him as just a philosopher, but he did not just think about these things. He acted on them as well. Um, But so when we think about this book or what I can share from it is that it's not necessarily that you're going to get just answers about things, but that it does teach us how to think about things. And one of the ways that we have to even approach looking at the world is to question things and to actually be open to questioning what we know or what we think we know. And I think that's quite interesting. And it's an interesting book to read after the book I read last week, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain by Lisa Feldman Barrett, because when we look at what we know about the brain and how we sometimes think we know what we're seeing or we know what we're uh, observing, but maybe we're not, we realize that even what we take so for granted, which is that what I'm seeing in front of me is exactly what I'm seeing, we recognize that we even have to question that or be open to questioning that. And the last chapter of this book, The Problems of Philosophy, Bertrand Russell talks about the value of philosophy. And and I'll, I'll share some excerpts from that chapter. But essentially, he talks about how 
one of the the values that we get from philosophy is that we question things. You don't just take something as a truth because it seems so obvious. Um, and so last week, when I talked about the uh, lessons about the brain, one of the lessons when we talked about the brain creates our reality or there can be a social reality is that very often things that we think are so real about the world might be things that we are creating in our brain or together we create some kind of reality that feels so real that it makes us think it must exist in some very real way. So I thought that was um, an interesting point that he was making this book written almost a hundred years ago, um, which has, or actually more than that, uh, I think it's more than a hundred years ago, um, where he's making that same point in a philosophical type of way that don't think you know what you know. And so even in the book, you're at times reading, well, do we know that the table exists? He talks about the table in his room. Um, and it seems like, okay, come on, what are we talking about? You can have that, that perspective, but that's something we need to talk about to really understand how do we know it's there. And so, um, he himself considers himself a realist as opposed to an idealist, which at the beginning of the 20th century, there was these two camps, so to speak. And the idealists were saying that nothing exists except for the ideas or mental representations or objects. Uh, essentially nothing is real. It's all ideas. And even when you're not looking at the object, because so we'll all think that if there's a table in your room, you're looking at your table, but if you look away, you still think the table is there, even if you're not looking at it. And so some idealists even would say things like, it exists because it still exists in God's mind in some way. It's a little bit complicated, um, but Bertrand Russell thinks it still is there. Now, the table itself is different from the image you have in your brain of the t of the table, your sense datum, as he calls it. So you see something, but you're seeing something in your brain doesn't mean it's the same thing as the actual thing itself. It's complicated and convoluted, of course, but it does, again, illustrate that when we look a little bit closer at what are we experiencing or what we take for granted, we see that so much of what we experience, it seems so real, but it's real because of how we see things. So, of course, it seems real in that way. So uh, I, I think it makes sense to think that there is something here. Right now I'm resting my arm on this kind of, um, it's not really a table, but this platform here. And it feels real. I can feel it. And I do believe that when I'm not touching it, it's still real. Or when I'm not seeing it, it's still real or it exists. But these things, how do we really say we can know? And so I think that's very interesting that we all should reflect on thinking about what do we know or what do we think we know for sure and often it's not the case um, one of his well-known quotes I've seen some different ways of wording it maybe because um, one of the words is cocksure which is a word we don't use and maybe sounds a little bit bad but I'll read this quote from Bertrand Russell it says the fundamental cause of the trouble is that in the modern world the stupid are cocksure while the intelligent are full of doubt and I really like that quote because you do see that even in the realm of science, people who study science, they know that you can't say we know this 100% for sure, um, or this is proven to be a fact. 
you might say things like the evidence is supporting this or recent research supports this theory or this idea, but it's hard to say we know something for sure. But people who don't really study these things, they will be much more confident saying, I know this is true. I know this is this way. And most people who are um, thinking in a more critical way can recognize the various sides of things. And I think that's unfortunate, but you see that happen. And especially you see this happening with things online. And if you look for great you know, thinkers or people who become very popular online, very often they say things in a very confident way that this is the only way it is and that's all it is. And people get drawn to that because we think that if something is said with such confidence, it must be more true. But oftentimes it's said with more confidence because the person wants to convince you of something or wants to convince you that they are right and they know this truth when really they might not know. So I think it's very important to be aware of this. When you hear someone talk, very often their confidence is not evidence of them knowing something more. It's just evidence that they want to say it in that way. Uh, and, and be very mindful of that. People are often trying to sell you something. Uh, I said this before, they try to sell you some kind of product or they're trying to sell you themselves. When they say something with so much confidence, and if you really think critically, you can see that there's no way for them to be that confident about what they're talking about. And as I've mentioned, it's something I try to be aware of when I share my ideas, when I share the things I think and I believe, to be aware of how I'm expressing those things, to make it clear that it's not that I have access to some special truth or I know something. Um, it's some of my beliefs, my thoughts, and I can say them confidently, but it doesn't mean that there's zero doubt in understanding it better or that I can even understand it better. I'm sure if I listen to my shows from six years ago, I might even disagree with things I'm saying, or at least I would hope my thoughts have become more refined or uh, advanced or evolved in some way. If our thoughts remain static, uh, there's a problem there, especially as we get new information, new experiences, we should understand that things can change. So I love that quote that the people who are stupid are so confident very often and those who are more intelligent are full of doubt because when we are intelligent, we tend to recognize that we can't know things for sure. So I did want to read some excerpts from the book, especially as I mentioned what I think was really interesting, the last chapter um, he talks about the value of philosophy. So let me read you a paragraph from, from uh, Bertrand Russell, The Problems of Philosophy. The value of philosophy is, in fact, to be sought largely in its very uncertainty. The man who has no tincture of philosophy goes through life imprisoned in the prejudices derived from common sense, from the habitual beliefs of his age or his nation, and from convictions which have grown up in his mind without the cooperation or consent of his deliberate reason. And so um, if we don't think critically about things, then we are just going to believe whatever is being told to us and think that it's a truth. And it does take some, um, you know, discomfort to challenge what we have been told. Even as I talked about last week and we try to understand the brain, when we 
face something new, it's always going to feel a little bit uncomfortable. So when we face something that challenges an idea or a belief that um, we've held for a long time or that people have told us about, it will always feel a little bit uncomfortable. It's a lot easier to just keep believing the same thing. And this also relates to what we're seeing in the political sphere where people don't want to hear anything that disagrees with what they believe to be true or they don't want to hear um, an idea that goes against the politician or the person that they like. It's always a little bit painful, a little bit uncomfortable to learn about um, things that we don't agree with. So uh, I really enjoyed that he was talking about that and even he says philosophy doesn't give us answers as in this is the truth um, in some ways it lets us question things more and understand them and even uh, you know again this book was written over a hundred years ago he was saying that philosophy contributes a lot and very often um, once a field becomes more well known it actually becomes its own science so physics was considered part of philosophy or he says psychology which um, used to be really a part of philosophy or really purely the study of philosophy, now is its own field. So we can see that um, it's not that philosophy doesn't offer much, but uh, uh, um, importantly, it teaches us how to think. How are we supposed to think about things, which I think, <laughs> pun intended in a sense, we don't really th look at or evaluate. Am I thinking in the right way? Am I evaluating things in the right way? Am I questioning things? What I think I know, what I think to be a truth, might not be so clearly a truth. And I think that was very interesting for me to see. And, and again, someone as brilliant as Bertrand Russell acknowledging that he could not know things. Um, so even as you're looking at me, yes, you might think if you're watching, you're listening to me, I exist. But really, if you ask yourself, how do I know? Or how would you know that I exist? You might think, well, it's obvious. But again, take a little bit of time to think about that. How do we know? How do you know when you are dreaming that's not real life and waking isn't the real thing? Of course, I know people think of things like that. And he actually says, you know, probably it's because our waking life is much more coherent, but our dreams are kind of all over the place um, that it makes us feel more confident about that. If you went to sleep and every day your dream continued exactly as it was the night before picking up in a story it might be more confusing and if you remembered it all but anyway um, thinking about thinking is something that we often don't spend a lot of time on or am i really evaluating information in the right way because it's a little bit uncomfortable to think think about that um, so I enjoyed the book. It was obviously, as the title implies, The Problems of Philosophy, a very philosophical book, uh, sharing some of his ideas of what we know and how we can know certain things or not know. And we have to also be careful. He talks about sometimes people think, well, through philosophy, we can prove certain things of religion or God and those types of things, which um, he says we, we can't do. You can't prove certain things. And you have to be very aware, uh, he mentions, not to try to prove something you already want to be true, which is what we usually do. We already have the result we want to get to, and we tell ourselves we're thinking about things, but really we are just trying to get to that result. And that's not genuine thinking. That's just trying to prove yourself right, which we're very often trying to do. So really enjoyed this book, a shorter book but very dense. The Problems of Philosophy by Bertrand Russell. Let's go to our first commercial break. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back. So in the first segment, I was talking about the book, Bertrand Russell, The Problems of Philosophy. Highly recommend it. Um, wanted to switch gears and talk about one aspect of life, um, and that is intimacy or closeness. And very frequently you'll hear even me say or, or others talk about a fear of intimacy. And so we'll say, if so-and-so, you know, they're not getting close to people, they, they have a fear of intimacy. But that is true. Very often it could be the case, but it, it's more complicated than that. So I wanted to get a little bit deeper into this. It's not just a fear of intimacy, but we can also think of it that as all human beings, we have to navigate the paradox of intimacy. And, and I'll explain what I mean by that. So by intimacy, of course, maybe I should give a little bit of a definition. I don't mean um sexual closeness because sometimes people use intimacy as a euphemism they say oh so and so and so and so were intimate with each other and they mean they had a sexual relationship so here i'm talking about um closeness in an emotional sense that type of intimacy and so as all human beings we yearn for that at some level to be close uh, taking a step back from that even looking from uh, an attachment type of standpoint we have a need to be close. When we are born into this world, we are highly dependent on our parents, are the, on the primary caregivers to take care of us. We can't survive even for essentially years without being taken care of. So there is this psychological type of maybe software, sounds like a simplified way or a complex way, that we are wired to want to get close and attached in that emotional sense to, to others. So we have this within us. And throughout our life, we still have it. Even if we don't need people to survive, there is that social and emotional need. And, and quite frankly, 2020 has been a year lacking of intimacy in a lot of ways in the sense that people have not been able to be as close with each other, of course. Social outings are not happening as much. People are not in public gatherings, families getting together for holidays, things of that sort. We see that there has been, unfortunately, lots of intimacy that has been lost, lots of closeness that at least has been lost in the sense that we aren't experiencing it. We try to compensate in other ways. Uh, I was on a birthday Zoom call earlier today. Lots of those have been happening. We were trying different ways to stay connected, to stay close. So we have this desire because it feels good. Uh, as uh, the book last week was talking about, we literally affect people's brains, bodies, and the way they're bu budgeting the resources of their body based on connecting with one another. By giving love, sharing that, giving some comfort to someone, you can help calm them quite literally, even from a distance, actually. She shared an example of te texting a friend saying, I love you in Belgium, and how that would actually potentially have an effect on her heart rate and the way she was doing. So we have this desire to be close, but it's also scary to get close. So in some ways, the fear of intimacy isn't just a thing some people have. We all can have it in various degrees, because the closer you get with someone, the more they can hurt you or the more you can get hurt by them. 
uh, or hurt by the relationship ending or something happening to them. So as we get older and there's less of a need in the sense to survive, but still a desire to get close, we can understand that it can be a little bit scary to get close. It does involve some risk to get close to others. So when people are thinking about starting a romantic relationship, you have to be ready to assume some level of risk. I can get hurt or the more I get close to someone, I can open myself up to get hurt in some way. And am I willing to take that risk? And that has to be something that you have to accept, along with a lot of the other costs that come with dating. You know, people will get to online dating like, oh, you know, you have to connect with people. You go on dates, things don't work out. It's a lot of work and headache and things that you have to go through, which is the reality. And so we have to accept that, that this is part of um, what is necessary to get close to someone. But then when we look at actually getting close, it does bring up a lot of feelings for us to recognize that we might get a little bit scared as we're getting close. So we want to stay safe. And this is the case with a lot of things. If you want to stay safe, you miss on opportunities. But then if you want the opportunity, you risk getting hurt. So what people experience is we want to get closer to someone else. But as we're getting closer, a few things get scary. One is that if they get to know us more, they could leave by knowing us more. So some people who have a strong fear of intimacy, so I want to say strong because we all can have some, it can partially be because they're afraid that once I am fully seen, the person won't love me. And this is a common thing that people experience when they're in um, relationships that keeps them from getting close, that there's this fear that if you see me, you won't love me. So we might keep relationships superficial. Either we'll keep them short, so we won't date people for so long, or even if we stay for, with someone for a long time, we won't fully let them see us. We won't get as vulnerable. We won't open up as much. We won't even want them to open up as much because then we might have to open up. So you keep it more on the surface. So someone can have a fear of intimacy and be married for 50 years. It doesn't mean fear of intimacy means they won't ever commit. It might be a reason why someone does not commit, but it's not necessarily um, mean that they won't because you can still be married to someone and not be very close to them. And you see it all the time. People actually think love is boring. And often what can make marriage boring is that people don't get that close to one another. Both partners might play a part in that, but especially one of them might not want to get close. So if I'm fully exposed to someone in an emotional sense, then if they reject me, it hurts every, even more. But actually, if I don't show you as much of myself and you say no or, or push the person away, then it's not as painful. It doesn't hurt as much. Uh, this is actually another reason why we wear masks. So, of course, we wear masks sometimes because we want people to, we think they'll like us more. So if they see um, certain aspects of us in a, a way, we pretend to be a certain way, they might like us. But another interesting thing I think people sometimes miss about wearing masks is as long as I'm wearing a mask, even if I get rejected, it will hurt. But that will hurt less than if I was fully showing myself and you rejected that. Because now I feel like you're rejecting the real me. 
if you reject a fake me, it actually will hurt a little bit less. And people do this in relationships as well. So we're, in a way, doing this balancing act where we want to be close to someone, but we're also afraid to get hurt. So how do I balance this paradox of trying to get closer to someone, but also recognize that as I get closer, I have to face more of a risk. And when I talk about intimacy with couples at times, I'll use a few analogies. Sometimes you can talk about going deep in the ocean. Sometimes you can talk about climbing a mountain, but I'll use the one about climbing a mountain. The higher you go with your partner, the further you can fall, but also the beautiful, more beautiful the view that you can see. So you have to risk that because as you go higher together, you can fall further, which is very scary, but you won't see as nice of a view if you don't go up. So some of us play it safe. Let's just stay here. We see something nice. It's not bad. And who knows what's up there it might not be very good, but others will risk getting closer to one another. And by doing that, it's a little bit scary, but you can then make sure you see something better as well. So that risk of intimacy is the further you go up, the more beautiful the view, the more beautiful the experience you have with your partner in that emotional intimacy, but also the further you can fall if something happens, if things don't work out, if the relationship ends for whatever reason. Uh, a quote I like that relates to this is, you know, falling in love with someone is giving someone the power to hurt you, but trusting that they won't. Because essentially that's what we're doing when we enter into a relationship with someone is that we're giving them some power to hurt us. The closer we get, they can hurt us or the relationship can, but we're trusting them that they won't. So there's always risk when it comes to a relationship and we have to be ready to accept that and to take that risk. And I hope you will take that risk for yourself and for whoever it is you're in a relationship with. So that paradox is, do I want to play it safe or do I want to get closer? And it's a little bit of a scary thing to think about, but something that we have to be willing to face and one that many people adapt to in different ways. Some people think that they are being bold or strong by not getting close to anyone. So we tell ourselves, I'm being independent. I'm being strong. So I don't get close to anyone and people will view them in this way as well. They'll think they don't really care to get close. And so we'll fool ourselves into thinking, it's not that I don't want a relationship. It's that I'm so okay by myself that I don't want to be with anyone else. And here we also get to a different place of need versus want. You should never go into a relationship because you need it, because you feel desperate. That's not good. But wanting to be with someone is not a sign of weakness. That can mean that you feel good with yourself, but you'd like a companion. You'd like to get close to someone. And that definitely is not a sign of weakness at all. That is a sign of actually could be a sign of strength that you want to get close with someone else. So we have to make sure we make that distinction and realize it about ourselves. Why am I seeking a relationship? Is it actually because I need it and I feel so lonely? Or is there some desire to get close to someone, to have a companion, to share a life together? It could be very different things. The actions might seem the same um, in how we act on them. So when we recognize we want to seek 
a relationship, now we have to say, how much am I willing to risk in getting close with someone? And trust isn't a black or white or all or nothing type of a thing. We have to start with a basic level of trust to be able to even start or create a relationship. If you're not willing to even trust a little bit, you can't start a relationship. The analogy I use for trust is it's like giving someone or loaning someone money. You wouldn't loan someone a huge amount of money, but even to start, even someone you barely know, you could loan them $5. And if they pay you back five, then you might loan them 10. And now if they show you they're responsible with that, then more and more and more. Trust is the same way. You don't trust someone fully with everything, your whole heart and your whole mind from day one. You um, have to make sure you show them a little bit and they earn your trust over time. Not that you give it to them all at once. You slowly show them a little bit more and they show you that they are trustworthy. You show them more and you continue that path. Some people think it should be black or white. Well, if you trust someone, then you should be fully open from the first moment and not worry about what happens. But that's not trust. Oftentimes that's a desire for having intimacy without actually building a connection and building that trust. Some people want to merge quickly with someone because they feel alone, because they feel empty, not actually because they want to have a relationship, but because they don't want to feel alone anymore. And that's different. So you have to ask yourself about trust. How much am I trusting and how much am I sharing with the other person? But as we get closer, the risk does become more, but the reward also becomes more. The more you share with someone and they share with you, the more beautiful it becomes, but again, the more painful it is. And so I see this with so many of my clients that they are, they are in this balancing act. We don't want to be alone, but we are also afraid to be very, very close with someone. And that creates this very scary balancing act of where do I go? If I don't want to be alone, I have to go towards someone. But as we get towards them, we freak out. This is kind of scary. It feels good. It feels exciting, but it also scares me. So we might run away. And some people stay in that middle ground. They don't want to go forward. They don't want to go all the way back. And they stay somewhere in between. Um, but this does not allow for them to create the type of intimacy that is possible. And so it's not that we just do it no matter what, but we pick the right partner and we slowly create that intimacy. And the most beautiful feeling we can have is to fully show someone who we are and what we really feel at our core and all the parts of ourselves and for them to love that. And that's what we are seeking is that if we keep showing more and more of ourselves and we get loved and appreciated for who we are and what we are, the other person can make us feel the most beautiful feeling in the world. And of course, we can hopefully reciprocate that back to them. And that's what we want to seek. That's the ultimate form of intimacy. Imagine showing someone who you truly are and being loved. And if we take that a step back, this is what our children are looking for coming into this world. But unfortunately, most of us don't receive that. Is to feel that when you are being just you, that is enough and that is lovable. And for every parent to give that to their child, that you are a lovable being just for being you. You don't need to become anything else. You don't need to hide or try to be anything else. You just need to be you and I love you. And 
We don't get that as a child, and very often that makes us doubt that someone will love us in that way as we get older, which makes it even scarier to risk that. Because if I'm afraid that when I show myself, the other person won't reciprocate that, it could be very scary. We think that if they see all of me, they are going to go away or not love me. So how can they show them my whole self? And this is that other side of the paradox, is that desire to be loved fully for who we are. But the only way that can happen is we have to show someone fully who we are. We have to take that risk. And you take that risk with someone who keeps showing you that they will love you, that they will appreciate you, that they see the good and the bad, and they see your flaws, the insecurities, and they still love that. And slowly you show them more and more and become more vulnerable. And of course, it, it should be reciprocated because it can't be just one person being vulnerable and bearing their soul. The only way it works is you go up that mountain together. One person can't be higher than the other. You walk up together. And that's when you experience that true feeling of emotional intimacy. And even as I say that, it's not some black and white thing that you have it or you don't, but you keep building that. You keep going higher. Your relationship get, relationship gets deeper and more connected. And that's really what we're searching for. But we all have to navigate this paradox of closeness, fear of intimacy, and desire of intimacy, and how it is a push-pull that can feel like a magnet that when you get too close, it pushes you back, but you don't want to go the other way as well. There's always risk when it comes to love, but hopefully we'll be wise in how we take that risk and believe it is worth that risk. Let's go into our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in the previous segment was talking about intimacy, one of the paradoxes that um, we face in life. And a lot of what we experience in life are these types of paradoxes, enigmas, things that we have to balance. And so I'll, I'll talk about this in a similar way in looking at um, romantic relationships. We were talking about getting close and the fact that if we want to get close, it takes some level of risk and we have to be willing to take that. But now I want to talk about space and closeness within a relationship. And so we we think, as I was just talking about intimacy, that we're getting close, that we should be getting closer to um, one another, which is true. But to balance a relationship, we do need to have a type of balance or harmony of space and closeness. The analogy I like when we think about this is looking at your love like a flame. And if you look at a flame or a fire, it needs closeness to make the heat, but it also needs space um, to have oxygen to breathe to be able to stay, keep going. If you have too much closeness, it smothers and the fire goes out. If you have too much space, there isn't enough heat to keep the fire going or to start the fire. So it's finding that balance of closeness and space. Sometimes people think if you love someone, you should be by their side 24-7 and not ever see anyone else or do anything else. And at the beginning of the relationship, you can have that feeling where you literally want to be with each other 24-7. But over time and realistically, you do need some space. And oftentimes, what you're experiencing does not mean your love is so strong or so good. It's actually this sense that you... Uh, feel empty inside and want to be filled by the other person, or you're actually anxious about 
um, the other person leaving you or not being by your side. So as is always the case, I'm always asking people to look at what's underneath. Don't just think, well, I always want to be around my partner. That's so good. It can be, but we have to look a little bit deeper and see what's causing that. And also, is your partner happy with that as well? Both very important things. So we have to balance this closeness and this space. Now, in an ideal world, you and your partner would want the exact same amount of closeness and the exact same amount of space. Not only that, you'd want it in the exact times and the exact same ways but we don't live in this perfect world and you're never going to have that. You and your partner are not going to have exactly the same desire for closeness and space at the same time. And this is when things get a little bit uncomfortable because um, people can think, how can I tell my partner I want some space when they want closeness? And it can be a difficult conversation to have, but to maintain or even first to create and then maintain a healthy and happy relationship, you have to be willing to have uncomfortable conversations. It's impossible to keep a relationship strong without having what might be considered uncomfortable or difficult conversations. The good news is the more you have them, the less uncomfortable they become. But nonetheless, you have to be willing to face those difficult and uncomfortable conversations. What I think is sad is people don't have these conversations and going back to the issue of intimacy, they get less close, they feel less good in the relationship, they might uh, start to lose their love and they might even seek out relationships outside of the marriage. I'm not saying you have to do this or this happens every time, but very often when I see an affair, you can see that there was a part where people will say, well, we used to be close together and we grew apart. Well, you started growing apart. It wasn't all at once. There was a growth apart or really not really growth, but this degeneration apart that both of you could have recognized and said something about. So it's something to be aware of. You know, um, people will say, well, I couldn't bring it up to her or him that the sex was not good or I wasn't satisfied in this way. And because we think we're being so good, then you go have a relationship with someone else. How is that better? How is what you're doing good? So it's not actually that you're being kind or good in any way. It's that you're avoiding having this difficult conversation or having those difficult conversations or having to face what's really going on. Um, I don't usually like things like this, but I got in the car today and it was uh, here in Los Angeles. And and I think it airs in other places or something called uh, and Ryan's Secrets, Joe Ryan's Roses. And it was something, you know, they had an affair. I wasn't listening. I heard of maybe one minute. And the man who was having the affair said something like, um, I was not happy, you know, we're not having a sexual relationship. And so sometimes like in the way he was saying that makes it okay. Uh, but they didn't deal with the issue. So if you want to have a good relationship, you have to have uncomfortable conversations. And so when we think of happily ever after, this is something I talk about a lot that people think once you find the right person, your quote unquote soulmate, Things are smooth sailing. That's it. You found the right person. And I love Eric Fromm in the book, The Art of Loving. He says people often think, or one of the problems is they think the problem of love is finding the right object to love or to be in love with or be in a relationship with. Once I find that right object, that right person, everything else just falls into place. Guess what? That's not true at all. It's going to be hard. 
and your fairy tale romance is going to involve a lot of uncomfortable conversations where you bring up something that actually is not easy for your partner to talk about or your partner is going to bring up something that might not be easy for you to hear but that you're going to have to be willing to listen to and have a conversation about. And this is actually why the foundation of your relationship is so important. If you feel that genuine love and safety emotionally with your partner, then it is easier for them to bring up something a little bit harder to hear. So if you know my partner loves me and has showed me that he or she loves me essentially no matter what. I say essentially because yes, if you do something that breaks your vows to them or it breaks your commitment to them, that's different. But they're not going to just leave me uh, for something small or because I'm being the way I am. Then it's easier to hear them say, I'm not happy about this. And recognize that it doesn't mean they're going to leave us or stop loving us, but that they're bringing up something serious in the relationship. I work with couples sometimes and and they'll even say, you know, I didn't want to tell him this or I didn't want to tell her that because I didn't want to hurt their feelings. And I love them, so I don't want to say something that hurts them. And it's understandable, but if we look at that a little bit deeper, we see that when you bring up something, and I even tell couples, you're not telling your wife or your husband that you're disappointed or feeling unhappy about something to hurt their feelings. If that's your intention, that is wrong or bad. It's because you actually love them so much. So it's not to hurt their feelings. You're actually saying, I want to tell you about something I'm unhappy about in our relationship because I love you so much and because I love our love and our relationship so much that I want to keep it healthy and strong and I want us to be close and to stay close. That's why I'm bringing it up. Now, you don't have to necessarily say all of that every time you bring something up, but it's something to recognize in yourself and hopefully for your partner to recognize as well. So you're not telling your partner, you know, I've been a little bit unhappy that you haven't given me the attention I wanted, let's say. Not, you're not saying that to hurt their feelings or to say they're a bad husband or a wife. It's expressing some feeling within you so your partner understands you better so that maybe they can do something about it and that's so that you can get closer to each other. Now, someone is asking, I can kind of see the question, uh, half of it on online on Instagram. Uh, why, why is it is it un, it is unnecessary? Why do we have to try to change each other? I'm not that sure if that's directed to what I'm saying. It's not about changing each other. Um, changing each other means that you, for example, you you know, are a happy person, I want you to be this way, or you have this career, you have to change it for me. But in interacting with one another, we are going to ask for things that might not be the first thing that we usually do. So um, you might not be a person who like likes to give lots of hugs, let's say, but if your partner, if their love language is physical affection, you might learn how to incorporate that more into your relationship. So it's not so much that you completely change who you are and they're not accepting you, but we do have things that we might ask of our partner to make sure our needs get met. And we shouldn't expect that all of our needs are going to get met in the relationship without communicating them, without letting the partner know what we want and what we feel, because that is something that we hope, very often we hope our partner could read our mind, but they can't. We have to talk about it. And that is why some of these things become uncomfortable. Here's something I like. And we make it more about my feelings, what I want, not you're such a bad husband or wife, or you're so this, or you're so that. It said, you know, this is a my need 
or this is my want, and I wanted to communicate that with you. That's a very different conversation from attacking your partner. You're making it about your own feeling and need that you understand is yours, and you want to share that with them. Um, Because I only have a few minutes left for today's show, this is also the case with the sexual relationship. Very often, because it's uncomfortable to talk about, because we're afraid our partner's going to take it personally, because of a host of other issues, we don't want to talk about it and we just hope our partner will understand what we want sexually in the relationship. But it almost never is the case. You have to communicate about all aspects of the relationship, including the sexual relationship, to make sure that um, you are getting satisfied. You can't just assume your partner is going to know and read your mind. We have to take mind reading out of the relationship. Without communication, there is no way of getting closer really to understand each other. So going back to what I was saying about sharing something, again, it's out of your love for your partner and the relationship. If that's your intention, that's a very good one. And that's actually more loving than not saying something. And that could be confusing because in the moment, let's say you're watching Netflix, you're having a good time, and something has been on your mind that you wanted to share with your partner. Now, if you look at that moment, your partner will be probably much happier to continue watching Netflix unbothered by whatever it is going on in your mind that you are unhappy about in the relationship. That's the truth. But like a lot of things, we often have to put away what feels good in the moment for what's actually better for our growth and our development, whether it's individually or in the relationship. So when you bring it up, we can expect that your partner might even be a little bit upset or not happy. What I find funny is that people will find any reason to avoid having these conversations. And so if they're in a bad mood, they'll say, oh, you already knew I was in a bad mood. Why did you bring something up? If they're in a good mood, they say, I was in a good mood. Why are you ruining it by bringing something up? And so in a way, it can feel like there's never a good time because there's never a good time to do something that doesn't feel good. It's always going to feel a little bit not good. We have to override that and realize it doesn't feel good in the moment, but this is good for my strength or my development or for the health of our relationship. If you were um, going to get your teeth cleaned, for example, you go get your teeth cleaned every few months, it doesn't really feel so good. Your mouth is open, they're poking, maybe it bleeds a little, all these kinds of things are happening. You're never feeling good to get your teeth cleaned, but because you know it's good to check up on things, to clean things out, to, to make sure you're maintaining the health, your dental health, you go do it. So the same thing is true of your relationship. You have to talk about things before you let it build up into a bigger problem. A small problem like in your teeth then develops into a cavity and then into you know the whole root canal and the whole to- tooth is gone. The same thing happens in your relationship. You don't bring something up, it doesn't go away. The problem just builds and becomes bigger. So again, you're not bringing up the uncomfortable conversation to hurt your partner. It's coming out of love. And I'm not saying that means every time you bring something up, you're doing it out of love. You have to really ask yourself, why am I doing this? And also because of that, how am I going to bring it up? Because bringing things up doesn't mean, well, you know, I heard psychologists say you can bring something up, so I'm going to say it however I want. You have to be aware of how can I bring this up in a loving way and in a way that's much more likely to make the conversation go well. So you can share with your partner, here's something I've been feeling. And let's talk about this. Now, what I've seen with couples that I've worked with, as I mentioned earlier, is that the more you have these conversations, the better you get at having them and the less scary they become. Anything we're anxious about, the more you face it, the more you actually will 
feel that you're not as scared of that thing. And that's how we overcome any phobia or any fear is you have to face it. And so this was kind of a whole sidetrack talking about um, having, uh, uh, you know, conversations about things. But I was talking about closeness and space and got a little bit derailed. Um, But it is recognizing that in order to navigate creating a relationship that has a balance of closeness and space, it's not one thing that someone can tell you. You need to spend eight hours together, three hours apart, or whatever it might be. This is something that you and your partner have to come up with or establish together, and it might change. Different parts of your life, you might want more closeness and more space. And we have to be able to talk about these things. It could feel like you're rejecting your partner to say, you know, I want a little bit of space tonight, or I feel like I need some space, or I want to be with some friends. And it's something you have to be able to share with your partner and to talk about the needs for closeness as well. It's not something that we we would wish that, again, everyone would just be perfectly on the same page, but it's never going to be the case. We have to accept that you and your partner won't just exactly be on the same page. That's okay. It doesn't mean you're wrong for each other, but finding that balance of closeness and space is one that you'll have to navigate together. It's not about all closeness or all space. It's a paradox or a type of enigma you have to balance with each other. That brings us to the end of tonight's show. A big thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fahir Lakwi. Have a wonderful night. Mm-hmm.